Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Noise in Brief, PR Week UK's fortnightly podcast series where we discuss the biggest industry news stories from the past week in a bite-sized format. I'm John Harrington, the editor of PR Week UK. Siobhan Holt is on holiday this week, so I'm taking the reins today and I'm joined by PR Week reporters Eliza Radu and Evie Barrett. We're going to dive straight into some fascinating research on PR salaries, bonuses and more that PR Week is covering all this week. The data has been provided by the WorkSearch, the executive search consultancy for PR and corporate comms. Evie, you've been looking at the data. What does it tell us about salaries in PR at the moment? Well, the upshot is that comm salaries surged in 2022. 79% of respondents received a pay rise. The salaries increased by an average of 10%, which is quite a jump from the average 2.5% increase last year. Although it's probably not quite as positive as it sounds because the 10% was roughly in line with inflation. Comparing agencies with in-house salaries, a higher proportion of in-house pros had their pay increase in 2022 than those at agencies. But the ones at agencies who did have pay rises saw a more substantial increase. So in a way, it sort of balances out. But in terms of bonuses, in-house pros seem to luck out. Around two thirds of those got a bonus compared to just over half of agency staff. And the in-house bonuses were actually higher. They were at an average of 23% compared to the 15% agency side average bonus. The Work Search Salary Guide is a really comprehensive piece of research. I think it's good because it also covers hybrid working patterns and hiring challenges and career moves. So I wanted to point out a few interesting stats on those topics as well. In terms of career moves, over half of the people who participated in the survey said that their ideal comms role would be in-house. That was 57%, which surprises me in a way because a lot of the agency PRs who I meet say that they couldn't imagine ever just working on one brand and they like the diversity of work that they can do at an agency. But I suppose there is a trend toward going into in-house as you progress with your career, maybe a bit later on. So I suppose reflective of that. Yeah, I'd say there might be an argument as well that perhaps people see in-house as a bit more secure. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but we write a lot about agencies being acquired and a lot of movement in agencies, whereas I think it's probably safe to say that there's slightly less movement on the in-house side of things. It doesn't mean there's not a lot going on, and we've covered it in quite a lot of detail in, in recent months, but I wonder if that is partly a factor here. Yeah, the work search actually mentioned that people can get quite comfortable in in-house roles and feel more stable. So I think that that's definitely one of the reasons. Another stat that I thought was interesting was in terms of hybrid working, in last year's report, no agency respondents, only 1% of in-house respondents said that they would be prepared to work five days a week in an office. This year, 6% say that they go into the office every day. So it seems to be 
that there's a bit of a trend towards people wanting to be back into the office. I know that anecdotally, when I've spoken to people, they quite like getting out of the house and being in the office more days than they're required to nowadays. So I think maybe the novelty of working from home might be wearing off a bit. I think there's more pressure as well, isn't there? I think not just in PR, but in lots of businesses, there's been the move towards sort of gently encouraging and then probably slightly more than a gentle encouragement to get staff back into the office. You know, we've had um, a few people talk about this. I believe Martin Sowell spoke about this quite recently, how he's he sort of says there's a massive downside to working from home. So, yeah, I, I expect it is partly that sort of novelty wearing off and also people wanting to be more sociable and all the rest of it. But... I also feel that there's been a sort of move from above, really, to sort of encourage more people back into the office more often. Anyway, it was fascinating statistics. I really recommend uh, everyone looking at those articles that are going to be run across this week on PR Week. So thank you, Evie, for that. I'm going to move on. This morning, the chaos at the TV show is continuing, really showing no signs of abating at all. It feels like Every day we could write something about the crisis comms at this morning with a slightly different angle, but it certainly proves to be one of the biggest corporate crises in the UK at the moment, I would say. Eliza, you've been following this, some of the more recent developments, and spoken to some crisis comms experts. What are they saying? Earlier this week, there were revelations around ITV having a toxic work culture, and in response to that comment, this morning's editor said... I'll tell you what's toxic, aubergines. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. I mean, I think he's trying to be witty and deflect from the question, but it just doesn't really achieve that. I think it's drawn more attention to it than if he'd just given a fairly standard answer. It feels like this crisis comm situation has gone from, you know, damaging allegations to sort of teary comments and apologies to what seems like kind of the Monty Python period. I mean, I literally have no idea why he was saying that other than someone's attempt at a joke. It's very strange. It certainly doesn't sound as though the This Morning ITV team have a kind of coherent comms strategy when someone just goes completely off the rails and talks nonsense. Weird. So lots going on there. What are PR experts saying? So the PR experts I've spoken to have like mixed reviews on the whole situation. Some say that what Philip has done is really good by coming out and confessing everything. But others also think that maybe this wasn't the best strategy and he should have thought about it a little bit more. When situations like this arise, what I've gathered from the experts is it's best to act quickly, but not too quickly and always give a heartfelt response so it doesn't feel too corporate. With allegations as serious as these, it's always very difficult to manoeuvre what people will think and what the public will gather. Yeah, I think the thing you said about needing to act quickly and give a heartfelt response, it doesn't really seem like ITV has managed to do that. I think they let a lot of speculation happen before they directly addressed it. And even the way that they did address it when Holly Willoughby returned to this morning this week, it just drew more attention to the situation and people just still found it a bit odd. I think part of the problem is... People who like this morning like it because they seem genuine. They seem like they could be your neighbour. It's kind of light entertainment, but it's also very comforting. And I think the problem with this is that it feels like there were people we thought we knew, but actually we don't. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. It's not even so much what he did and what they did. It feels like 
the public have been lied to somehow or they've been they've been kind of persuaded that people are acting in a certain way but actually they're not that these people are friends but actually they're not that they do get on but but they don't and I don't think that's been helped by things like personally I wasn't a big fan of the photo shoot with Philip and was it his mum I think that was on the sun it felt so I mean it was staged obviously and very very set up and I kind of think people are cynical about that now I mean I might be wrong it didn't seem genuine from my point of view and Following on from that, he did an interview where he was vaping and I thought that was not the best look if you're trying to seem sincere, like taking seconds to just vape. It was very weird to me. I've seen people say that that was kind of a distraction technique, but I'm not sure how effective it was because it still just brought a lot of attention and not particularly positive attention. It looked oddly cocky as well. There's a thing I've heard of in films where this is a bit of a trope where you get a cocky character who just eats an apple. It's surprisingly popular in films. And there's something about it when they're talking to someone senior and important, they eat an apple, that's a real kind of cocky move. And there was something of that about it, which is kind of strange. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I definitely did feel it was odd. I also think it was very uncomfortable when he spoke about Caroline Flack as well. I know he got some criticism for that. On the one hand... It's a very strong, powerful way to make a point. And actually, arguably, that may be working because I've seen quite a lot of people on social media talk about how that he's had enough. We don't want to drive this guy to anything terrible. So I can kind of see why maybe he did that. But at the same time, it feels pretty tasteless to bring up somebody who died a few years ago in this sort of context. So, yeah, I don't know. It feels like there are definitely lessons to be learned from this. And I also think it's such a big discussion point in the comms industry for that reason. Can Lion is on the horizon, as I'm sure many in the industry will know. And we had Joanne Robertson of Ketchum, who is chairing the PR Lions jury this year on Beyond the Noise podcast last week. Have a listen to that if you haven't already. Eliza, you spoke to Joanne for a feature this week. What else was she saying about Can this year? Uh, This year, she expects to see a lot of levity. She expects to see fun campaigns and things that bring like a smile to your face, which I find quite exciting, especially in this current like economic and social climate. She also brought up the point of the metaverse and AI. And she essentially said is this year's AI, last year's metaverse. And I found that quite funny because I remember getting a lot of press releases from agencies, creating new policies and schemes around the metaverse. But that swiftly changed and now we're looking at artificial intelligence. But what Joanne was saying is no matter what the technological advancements, it's always really nice to just be creative and do what you can with the technology you have. And I thought that was really interesting because although AI isn't fully developed, people and PR agencies are still pushing new innovations and creating new ideas around AI. And she expects to see things like that. I don't know that you can directly compare the metaverse. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
to AI, in my opinion, because I think AI has a lot more practical uses. I also think there's a big question around AI and creativity and whether it can actually help or hinder creativity. So I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out and if it is used in any campaigns, like what impact can it actually have? I saw a can predictions post. I think it was from David Gallagher. So apologies, David, if, if you happen to listen to this and if it wasn't from you. But I think he was saying that he expects AI to come up in literally every panel discussion. And I kind of agree with him. I think its significance just goes way beyond the metaverse. I'm not saying that... I th- It feels like the metaverse is coming for a bit of a bad rap at the moment. I think it's going to evolve and it's going to have its place. But AI is just an entirely different beast. And it's probably unfair, actually, to compare the two different things because as we heard at PR360 um, last month and sort of numerous other speakers, you know, the impact of, of AI on the industry is going to be profound. You know, people can disagree exactly what impact it's going to have and, and when, but I think it's going to be absolutely huge. That's obviously a huge topic for, for another day. But I certainly think the Can Line Festival will have a really deep look at how AI is going to affect creativity. And I think that will be fascinating. Another point Joanne made was on purpose campaigns and Joanne basically was warning people that it could be a bit frustrating when your brand lacks substance and the client and the agency don't really mesh well together or they don't have a similar ideological alliance. And what she was mentioning is that the general public are now like seeing that and the public can now see if campaigns aren't authentic and if the brand doesn't really relate to the issue that the campaign is on it can look a little bit tasteless in my opinion another thing she said which I thought was quite interesting is that everyone on the jury now does unconscious bias training and DEI training which basically means everyone's more open-minded she was giving me an example of a case study that she saw this year that she didn't mention the name or what it was about but she said it was a South Korean campaign and she doesn't really know much about South Korea however after doing some research and reading the little blurb that all the campaigns have to write when entered she said it was like an amazing culture first thought-provoking campaign and without that training or without that additional step of doing extra research and going deeper she just probably wouldn't have rated it as high and I think this is like amazing in terms of diversity because uh, the industry is being more open-minded and is allowing creativity from all across the world to like show. Yeah I think that's really positive because if you think about it I'm sure the PR strategies that work in each country are wildly different and I guess it's quite difficult for one panel of judges to judge that in each case and to kind of apply the same view to everything. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, kudos to Cannes for having that. I mean, you think just the scale of Cannes just boils my brain sometimes. You know, the number of entries, you know, the hundreds of entries they get for the, for the different categories, thousands sometimes potentially, and the amount of work that the jurors have to go through. And I think the fact that they're having unconscious bias and DNI training on top of that, and I can totally see why they can, particularly given the global nature of CAN, I think is is really interesting. So yeah, kudos to them. Um, and good luck to all the jurors on PR lines and, and all the others. I'm sure it will be a quite, quite a taxing but enjoyable process. Staying with CAN, 
and today actually, breaking news, probably not breaking by the time this comes out, but anyway, breaking news for now when we're recording this, the first line shortlists have been out, um, not the PR lines, they won't come out for a while. There weren't really any particular PR agencies featured or credited in those that I saw, but it's interesting there was a nod for the last photo campaign for Calm, campaign against Living Miserably and ITV. Adam and Eve DDB incidentally was credited with that, the ad agency. We had a presentation from Calm at PR360, actually, our event last month. So although an ad agency has, has been given the credit, I certainly think there's a lot of earned media skills on show for that campaign. And it, it really is a stunning campaign. It's one of my favourites of the year, potentially my favourite of, of the year so far. So I really would check that out if you get a chance. Yeah, it was a great campaign. I think it was credited as one of the top campaigns by our power book this year as well. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really powerful... I remember seeing PR360. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house, actually, when they showed the video of it. I'm not exaggerating either. So, yeah, a really inspiring piece of work. So congratulations to them. Talking of creative campaigns, ordinarily we expect a slew of Pride campaigns around now, given June is Pride Month. One big question this year is whether the recent crises brought about by Bud Light's work with the trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney and others such as Target in the US receiving backlash for its pride range has discouraged brands from taking part. We had a story today. I spoke to the people at Advertising, the group sort of lobbying for LGBT inclusion in advertising and marketing. And the person I spoke to there said that there is more apprehension this year, they think, or it appears to be the case. And it is probably linked to these sort of crises, which they say is being fueled by a particular campaign against the LGBTQI plus community, which is obviously very sad. What do we think about this? Are we all surprised that there appear to have been fewer Pride campaigns this year? I think it's a little bit sad, in my opinion, that there aren't as many campaigns as there would have been in the past because of the ongoing controversies. Normally, like when you're walking down the street in June, you see the rainbow everywhere. One thing that I remember very well is like the rainbow Birkenstocks for Pride. And I think they're very cute, but I just haven't seen anything that screams at me. And I feel like people are trying to play it safe, but by playing it safe, you're also alienating people in the community. And I don't think that's fair to them because of some backlash from people that don't agree. I don't think we should stop creating these type of campaigns or we shouldn't stop trying to advocate for people just because of some backlash. Yeah, I think like you say, ordinarily, there would be a lot more brands playing it safe by just kind of putting the rainbow on their logo or putting out a message like love is love, which shows support. But I think now the message I've seen from a few people is if you're not going to go beyond that and authentically support all year round and put a bit more thought into a campaign beyond the standard rainbow then it's not worth doing so I think some brands are kind of just staying quiet opting not to do anything and hoping that it will be forgotten rather than stepping out of the box and being called out. I don't think it will be forgotten though because for the last few years as soon as it hits June, you see the rainbow, you see lovers love. And although it can get tiring at times, 
I think it's also good representation to have in the industry and campaigns around pride, I think are very important, even if you're not part of the community, because it raises awareness and it normalizes the experiences of people in the community. And I think that's quite important. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm not saying that they shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that with all the backlash, it kind of makes sense that they'd really want to think through their approach. In a funny way, I think maybe some brands feel like they could be attacked from both sides. That obviously we've got the sort of the organized campaigns as advertising talk about from a certain part of the world that just doesn't like LGBTQI plus inclusion in advertising and marketing. They just want to see the back of it. But at the same time, uh, Evie, you're alluding to the sort of the need for authentic campaigns and for support all year. You can imagine there might be some brands that might be concerned about a backlash from the community because it looks like, you know, they're not doing it the correct way. They haven't said the thing in the right way. They haven't quite used the right approach. So I imagine there might be some of that going on as well. I see what you mean. I think personally, it's the trying that's important. So even if you don't get it right, that you've at least attempted to do something because June isn't a long month. And I understand that pride campaigns should be all year round. And I would say the same thing about like Black History Month, for instance, it's more than just a month. But when brands somewhat ignore a demographic, it's very isolating, I find. Or maybe that's just me. (laughs) I think, no, I think that's right. I think there is just an increased nervousness at the moment. I think that's just the time. I think people would appreciate it though. Yeah. And actually one thing that advertising was saying is that brands should get involved. Like don't be nervous. I think that's part of it because there may well be a lot of brands that do want to get involved, but they just feel that they might be the, the wrong side of a backlash from either side, which is, yeah, which is quite sad. But I'll be interested to see by the end of the month if many more Pride campaigns do come up because, yeah, I mean, we started talking about this because anecdotally, we just didn't see many. Whereas, you know, we do roundup campaigns every week and usually you will start to see Pride campaigns coming in sort of late May. But yeah, there's really been a dearth this year. Okay, well, this is a fascinating discussion, but I think we need to leave it there. That's it for this episode. Noise in Brief goes live every two weeks. In the meantime... Look out for our Beyond the Noise podcast next week. Thanks to Eliza and Evie, and thanks to you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.